Hello and welcome to Resting Batch Face, the only Top Chef recap pod that if the hosts were given the rose-flavored quickfire, would bring the food up to Padma and ask, will you accept this rose water vinaigrette? <laughs> Dan Paul, joined as always by my good friend and co-podcaster, Gwen Kirby. And Gwen, will you accept this rose podcast? I will. I will. I actually, I really don't like rose in food. I don't, it's not, it's not an ingredient that I have ever baked with. And it is, it's like kiss of death on Bake Off. Someone's like, oh, I'm going to put like rose in this. Nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you it tastes like a bar of your grandmother's soap. Little bit of inside baseball for our listeners. Gwen Kirby hates rose flavor so much that she is not even going to wait until we get to that discussion point in the <laughs> podcast flow before she starts fussing about it. Look, I'm just I'm hot off our Temptation Island episode, and I'm just like the the takes are still flying. That's fair, though. I will say before we get into the quick fire, which had the roses, I do think we like our. Top Chef contestants that we recap should take a moment and pretend that Kiki is dead so that we can raise a glass to her for having gotten kicked off of the show last week. It was very dark. <laughs> and there was like, oh my God, you know, what is dead may never die. Like, it was like, oh my God, she just like has to go home to her dog. She's or on Last Chance Kitchen as we speak. She's fine. She's fine. Yeah, even before the quick fire started, I was starting to get worried. Any of our loyal listeners know that I love Maria. And Maria was getting a lot of attention this episode. And I knew it was it was elimination or apotheosis time for Maria. And I was concerned. Yeah, it, it will, as we'll all see, it worked out for Maria. I will also say just this episode just made me appreciate Avishar. Just in that, you know... Spoiler for those who are listening to us but don't watch the show, in which case none of this makes any sense anyway. But we lost Jamie, which is tough. And oh, yeah, that it hurt. just makes me feel like anybody can go at any time. You know, as with Kiki, life is life is fleeting. And so just to enjoy Avishar while we have him, and even before we get into the quick fire, his self-deprecating remark, I think I'm going to try one more rice dish before I get eliminated. <laughs> that was very funny. That was a joy. Well, getting into the quick fire, and I, I do just want to say, you know, for those of you, I know that Mother's Day can be a very complicated holiday for a lot of people, whether it because they have complicated relationships with their mothers or they their mothers are no longer here and that kind of thing, which does, of course, make me think of my cousin Benjamin's famous line, his bar mitzvah. And we also want to thank those who couldn't be here because they were busy or because they are dead. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. He's... He's about, what is he now? He's like 25, 26, something like that. I, I think that he's come a long way since that that August afternoon so many years ago. But the challenge, which is cheesy as hell, is yeah. again, it's, it's one of these things where there's two challenges wrapped in one. In fact, in ways that actually, I think, fight against each other. One is to use roses, which as Gwen's shriveled nose just now tells us she does not like from a culinary standpoint. And the other is to in some way invoke Mother's Day. And I will say if I was cooking something that had anything to do with my mother, I sure as shit wouldn't put any fucking flower petals in it. No, hell no. It's weird. It's weird on a lot of angles. Like one, maybe your mom doesn't like that. Two, I just feel like roses are very like for romance. Like it seemed a little... 
I don't know. It was weird. Um, There was a lot of gendered shit I didn't love about this challenge. Um, Quite a few of the contestants say things like, like Maria, who I love, says, you know, oh, every mom tries to watch their weight. Or like Sarah says, you know, my mom wants to keep fit. Just all this shit that I'm like, if this was for Father's Day, no one would be like making a goddamn salad being like, no one's dad wants to be a fat whore. (laughs) I just like... (laughs) I did not, I did not appreciate that um, at all. And I would like to make that known. I will say that Father's Day greeting card writes itself. Before (laughs) we get into some of the specific people and how they handled this quick fire, both with what they cooked and what they said, I have a top chef kind of watching question for you. So I already get the sense, just correct me if I'm wrong. You don't really like eating things with rose in them. But (laughs) I'm curious, how do you feel about watching a challenge like this? where, Where on the one hand, it's not the experience that we've talked about of like, you're watching people cook something that you're very excited to eat, but it is watching professionals cook with something that is very difficult to cook with and to do it effectively. And I'm curious how you balance those two things when you're watching, like, are you able to set aside your visceral distaste for putting rose petals in in food and enjoy the kind of technical craft that goes with it? Yeah, I was, um, I mean, for all that I've been really subtle about my dislike of rose flavoring, um, I I do know that it's really difficult to cook with well. And it was also clearly an ingredient that these chefs don't use very often. So I liked watching it, especially because rose is something that I've only really ever seen incorporated into desserts. And so seeing them put it into into savory dishes, I thought was I thought was interesting. And, And they ended up producing a couple of dishes that I actually would really I would really like to try. I mean, speaking of difficulty, something that actually struck me as impossible, but I'm wondering if it happened. Did Avishar make you love him more when he said that he hates roses in food? I loved it. And the face that he made, I feel like, was the face that I was making. Avishar tells the viewer that he has banned Rose from his restaurant. Can I also just say, I think my favorite Avishar moment of of the whole episode when he says, like, completely kidding like this is such a corny burn but he says 1999 called and they want their plating they're plating back i thought that was great Uh, that's like the kind of like inside like mfa school fucking humor i loved that so much that was yeah well so looking at the dishes dan um what were the dishes that caught your eye what were the ones that you wanted to wanted to try it's interesting I, i mean she didn't end up doing all that well with it i mean i certainly I'm always drawn to Jamie's food, which is now a thing of the past. She made her mother's imperial roll, and she says, I use shrimp, pork, mushrooms, and I and I deep fry it. Um, <laughs> which, again, the, the, the poetry of, of Jamie is fantastic. I mean, honestly, I was more struck by some of people's comments, honestly, more than even the food, because, again, this is something that's very difficult for me to access. Like, I would not order something with fucking rose petals in it. Like, I don't like it when my tea tastes like a fucking candle. Like, that's not really what I'm there for. But there were some really interesting things that people said that I think speak to some of the some of the challenges of being on this show, especially when people psych themselves out. Byron, where he says there's a lot of pressure to honor your mother. And like I agree, like sure, honor your mother, but I don't know that necessarily eating flowers does that. Like even if we accept the Rose Industries claim that you you demonstrate love through flowers, which I mean this is not this is not a show about globalization, but there's a pretty complicated economy of rose growing that I, and maybe it's just part of me that like, I don't like buying flowers. I wouldn't want to receive flowers. Like basically I'm not interested in 
something you can't eat as a gift for the most part. But so that was odd. Maria, right, she says she's here to prove herself to her son, which is on the one hand heartbreaking, but the other hand is much better than when you see the same shit on Naked and Afraid. There'll be just some dude who's like, I'm here in the middle of the jungle without any clothes on or food for 21 days to prove to my daughter that you can do anything. And I'm just imagining that dude coming home and being like, listen, if I can survive in the fucking Amazon, you are not quitting your piano lessons. And then like Sarah, I found this actually interesting because she's trying to decide how much rose to put in. And it's like the game theory of these challenges is interesting because you have to do enough to plausibly be doing the challenge. But a lot of times the challenge is something that would make food suck weirdly. And so it's like, how much can you put in so that you meet the challenge, but it doesn't actually taste like roses. And so some of that stuff kind of comes out in some of the dishes. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And yeah, rose is an ingredient that it's just, it's, if there's even a little bit too much, it just, it tastes like perfume. It's kind of gross. Um, I think that being said, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing that I, I was really interested in eating was Gabe's in that he mm. makes like a rose out of fish and it's like cured in rose water and smoked in rosebuds. That was smart. Yeah, he so was smart like, with his challenges. I mean, it just looked like a kind of cruda that, yeah. hurt, and that's the kind of thing where I think the flavors, the flavors could balance. I mean, a lot of these things I would have eaten, but part of it is that I just don't eat this kind of shit. So I don't really even know what I wouldn't like. I mean, I, the two dishes actually that we haven't talked about, but were the two I was the most interested in eating were Shoda's rose mochi ball. And one, because I like mochi. And two, it was such a beautiful plate. Like that, like pale, like lavender and the pinks. And it was gorgeous. Um, and the other one was Dawn's fennel and rose fritter with uh, macerated peaches and rose cream. Also sound, I mean, I love a fritter. Like, what are you, what am I going to not like a fritter? That's not going to happen. Sorry, I'm just realizing that every time we mention somebody who's awesome, they're pretty much not on my fantasy team. <laughs> But what are you, what are you going to do? I, I did what find a couple things, other, other things that were interesting that show up sometimes in a show like this that for the, the lay chef are interesting. One is like four or five of these people paired rose with pistachio, which would certainly have never occurred to me to do. And I mean, that itself says nothing because it would never have occurred to me to cook with rose. But it is interesting how there are, there are some of these things that are classic pairings that we don't have a framework for them being classic. I do. You have a... I do for rose and pistachio because I've seen people do that on Bake Off a bunch. Okay. Well, there is the classic pairing of Gwen Kirby and dumbass Plexus. <laughs> so that's one, that's one that we're aware of. But again, it's something that I think shows up on shows like this a lot is you'll hear people who know things say like, that's a classic pairing. And it's just, it's interesting when it's not something that it would have occurred to me. But sorry, do you want to take a victory lap about rose and pistachio? No, I feel good about what I said. I did want to provide a Gwen tidbit. So as I'm sure our viewers noticed, um, Sarah has a moment where she's like, oh my God, I need buttermilk. And she couldn't find any buttermilk. So she had to use yogurt. If you don't have buttermilk, home bakers, you can make buttermilk for yourself. It's very, very quick. You just take some regular milk and you put either vinegar or lemon juice in it. Let it sit for five minutes. Um, and then you get the acidity in the buttermilk, which is what the recipe requires to have it react with your with your baking soda, etc. So don't be daunted when a recipe calls for buttermilk. You can make your own. This shows how stupid I am because I really thought you were going to say add some butter, which was then going <laughs> to... Which was making me think that of the Mitch Hedberg joke where he's like talking about Sprite and he's like, they say it's lemon and lime, but I tried it and there's more to it than that. Um, 
So it turns out there's more to buttermilk than just butter and milk. So speaking of, I will say, dumb decisions, and look, we love Maria. This is a pro-Maria podcast, and, and maybe this is going to – Gwen is the expert on this because she up until recently believed she had a shrimp allergy. Well, why the fuck would you make shrimp if you can't taste it? I don't know. I, that was a very confusing decision. I mean, that whole dish was a mess. Uh, you know, the, it reminded me a little bit, not as bad as like that salad that they put the strawberry jam on or whatever that got eliminated. See, now you're just punching me in the stomach because that was man buns dish. Oh, and you're just well, reminding me for the second podcast in a row of how you did not go to man buns restaurant when you had the opportunity to. Well, maybe if you'd come to AWP, then you could have done that yourself. But no, Maria was fucked. You had like the kiss of death question where they're like, did you do anything to that papaya? Code for like, why is your papaya so garbage? Um, so you knew she yeah. was fucked. Did I you, was very worried. Did you do anything with that papaya? Like maybe jam it right down your fucking ass, you <laughs> fucking worthless bitch. <laughs> it's always, or with Nelson, they were like, so um, did you put Rose in anywhere um, besides the beans? Just like, all right, all right, just say it. There wasn't enough rose in the dish. God damn. Yeah, I look forward to their fucking cyanide challenge where it's like, so this is more just like I wanted a cyanide aroma. And it's like we kind of were looking for the cyanide to be kind of in the protein. <laughs> so silly. Um, I don't know. That's kind of all my quick fire thoughts. Good for Chris for winning. That looked very tasty. He continues. I mean, he's on, he's on an ascent. But as we learn in the elimination challenge, he's certainly capable of the floor, the floor falling out. I mean, like we're starting to see the people that we can mostly trust, right? Obviously, Shota, mostly Gabriel, Gabe, Dawn has gotten over some of her early season, yeah, insanity. Like she hasn't called herself a failure in several <laughs> episodes, which I think is 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 a good sign. A step in the right direction. And of course, as the episode goes on, we, we get something of the apotheosis of Maria, who, again, as you mentioned, I mean, it's not just she gets a lot of screen time. Like, she's on the phone with her family, always a red flag, and she's just, like, crying about a lack of self-confidence because she didn't go to culinary school. And it's like, you can you can do it, Maria. We, we believe in you. We believe in you. Well, do we have, before we get into the elimination challenge, do we have a Gwen Food Minute prepared this week? We don't. I'm so sorry, loyal listeners. I was hoping to like get one together this morning, but then instead I spent this morning rewatching three hours of Temptation Island so that I could record our previous podcast. But I'm going to come back strong next week. Have no fear, listeners. She'll come back with two minutes next week and not even because she's doing two different food items. Yeah, I believe in myself. And actually, I'm planning to make everything bagels after after this podcast. So though it's not a Gwen Food Minute, I will say, you know, follow your dreams. You can make bagels at home that are pretty good. Anyway, anytime you can trust a Californian on what makes a good bagel, I think you got to hey, do it. Hey, now. It's, that's it. low blow. <laughs> well, let's get to this elimination challenge because I'm going to say two things about it that seem contradictory. But I think speak to the spirit of the show. And I'm curious if you agree or disagree. Those two things are, one, this episode was immensely enjoyable. And two, this challenge was fucking stupid. I could not agree more. It didn't like didn't really make any sense, like have a food that's like an action movie. Let's start by describing it. Because again, I think there's a danger sometimes of what a professor of mine might refer to as the imitative fallacy, which is the assumption that because you are writing or talking about something that was incoherent, 
that the form of the language in which you write about it should be similarly incoherent, when in fact the opposite is typically true. It needs to be hyper-structured. So the challenge was trying to reproduce the feeling of ordering food at a drive-in movie theater. And the way that they did this was to combine what are functionally two different challenges. One, which is, I think, pretty straightforward and produces interesting food, and the other, which is utterly inane. So those two things are, one, food that you can eat in a car, right? So a lot of people did things like with sticks or with little cups and dipping sauces. Think about the kind of things you would order at a movie, um, right? You're not going to get a lot of heavy sauces aside from perhaps the, the nacho cheese. And the second is that they were split into teams and they were responsible for producing dishes that aligned with six different film genres. And those genres were comedy, drama, action, sci-fi, horror, and romance. And if you listening at home are wondering, what the fuck would that have to do with food? <laughs> then you are at the exact same place as all of the people in this challenge. Like, I just, it's kind of, I almost wish that they had been even fussier as a way to like highlight the stupidity of the challenge. Like, I kind of wish that like somebody had raised their hand and asked Padma, like, when you say sci-fi, do you mean more like, are you thinking like literary sci-fi? Like, is the dipping sauce supposed to be more like the road or are we thinking more like kindred <laughs> or are we going like just like OG Philip K. Dick here with this particular bechamel like wait what are you talking about uh yeah I, that would have made me extremely happy um I mean there's some at least with a few of them like romance is easy because we have a lot of culture around romance but like action drama so we get some we get some phenomenal lines as the chefs try to make sense of this. And this is, to me, the reason this is a bad challenge is that the people who did well were the people who basically ignored it. And the yeah. people who did poorly were those who tried to make sense of it. And we'll kind of, we'll talk about that as we go along. I mean, we get this great line from Shoda speaking for all of us. Why do you have to make it so complicated? Why can't you just let us cook? Gabriel at one point said, what's a dramatic food? Which I think is fair. Like, I mean, unless like, I don't know, though. I guess, I mean, this makes me think not to be sacrilegious or to insult our, I'm sure, substantially, the substantial amount of Jews who listen to our our podcast, but like fucking Passover. Like, I'm sorry, horseradish does not represent slavery. Like, that is a trivialization. Salt water does not represent the salty tears of slavery, necessarily. I I mean, Dan I- is, Dan is Jewish, everyone. Uh, as the Gentile co-host, I have no opinion. Anyway, I'm just like culinary metaphors, like- Especially when there's real ass food in the other room, like that to me is like is the functional metaphor. Like suffer for two hours talking about about oppression while you're waiting for the dope ass fucking lamb in the other room. But like anyway, I've never been all that impressed by culinary metaphors because they just don't really make that huge amount of sense. I mean, like Dawn. I mean, this is some great poetry from Dawn, who's offering up a quote juxtaposition of popcorns. A duo of popcorn is a risky dish, but it will be sweet and spicy. That's what drama is all about. Like, is it? I just, I mean, we can, we'll go over these when we, when we go through them, but, um, but there's just, there's a lot. I mean, Colicchio is walking around and he says like, how is your chicken funny? And then she's like, well, you know, rubber chickens are funny. And he looks at her as if, as if she's the stupid one. It's like, you know, to quote Sam Jackson in Pulp Fiction, like they're your clothes, asshole. Like <laughs> you're the dumbass who assigned this idiotic fucking challenge. Yeah. Look, I- when you're asked to bring three items that both are deeply meaningful to you, but also you don't care if you destroy them and, <laughs> you know, 
to uh to uh to a class about composition uh and then shit's stupid that's on you gwen is citing and i will give some context for our listeners probably i'm gonna say a pretty seminal moment in in the development of our friendship early on in in our graduate school career when we were told that we were gonna have to go to some seminar on composition theory and that we had to bring five objects that, as she mentioned, were deeply personal to you, but you were willing to destroy. And a couple people asked a couple of like composition questions or practical questions. And Gwen raised her hand and said, what is the point of this? <laughs> Which is, you're not actually, it seems, allowed to do that in a graduate composition theory class. But no. there we were. Anyway, get, getting back to this, I mean, the best thing I'll say about it is it does produce the opportunity for Abishar to riff about marshmallows and aliens. Abishar like really like shined I feel like in this challenge because he's just such a goofball and so he just decided to be a goofball about it which was totally the right way to do it sort of as you say like I feel like the ones who had the most pitfalls were the ones who like overthought it and Abishar I think was mostly like I love liquid nitrogen and being a nerd so that's what I'm gonna lean into and he did a great job. I think probably his dish seemed like it had, it was pretty similar to that, um, the gelato challenge that he had where he made the Buckeye. I mean, again, I think this is the second time he's used a liquid graham cracker, which again, I I I did not, I didn't know was an ingredient, but I mean, here we are. So maybe let's just get into, um, we'll just go through the genres as it were, though. Again, I think a lot of, I think genre is a silly enough conversation when you're talking about actual art, let alone when you're talking about culinary metaphors on a game show. But here we are. Here we are. We started with comedy and we had Jamie versus Byron and they both go with chicken. Basically, I think because of the existence of rubber chickens, Jamie makes sticky chicken wings with fish sauce and kind of like pepper confetti. She then makes a chicken sound. And what I, and Byron makes Korean style fried chicken. And what I noticed for Byron that helped him, he made no attempt to explain the relationship between his chicken and humor. And as they talked about why they liked the chicken, they said nothing about humor. They were just like, this is a good chicken tender and some spicy sweet sauce. So the moral for those aspirational top chefs out there, when they give you a dumbass challenge, just make something tasty. Again, they don't care really. Jamie's like, haha, chickens are funny. And then Byron's like, sure, I also made chicken. Um, and you know, what it came down to really was that the, the judges cared a lot more about, is this something you can eat in a car? Yeah. I felt bad for her too, though, because it sounded like he fucks her over. She was like doing a fine job, deep frying her chicken and everything. And then freaking chef Splaney Gabriel is like, no, cook your chicken wings differently. And she does. And she ends up with like soggy, shitty chicken wings. Which, and I, I just think. The irony of her chicken being rubbery after describing it as rubber chicken for the humor. I think that was just too clean for Colicchio. Like, I don't even know if she had the worst thing. Like, that joke, I think, was too exciting for him. I have hope for Jamie. I realize this is jumping ahead, but she only has to win one more Last Chance Kitchen to be back in the game. Does she really? Was I not paying attention? Yeah, you weren't paying attention. Because Tom says... Like, oh, like, twist, Um, there's only going to be one more Last Chance Kitchen elimination before someone gets to go back to the show. So I think now Jamie only has to beat the next person eliminated, and she heads back. Fucking Calicchio, like, he's he's always overthinking shit, whatever. I guess they're trying to to keep it spicy. They're trying to create 
drama. Drama. Segue. So for reasons, the next challenge, which is drama, is Chris makes Harissa rips ribs with pickled shallots, which sounds fine to me. They are, quote, dramatic in that they are inspired by the fight for the last rib, which I'm a pretty hungry motherfucker, and I can't even in my life remember getting into an actual fight <laughs> or even, like, really any substantial um, Hufflepuff about who gets the last piece of, of, of food. But here we are against Dawn offering a duo of popcorns with a drama of flavors between, it seems like, sweet and spicy. And Dawn's looked good. It was it was smart. It was a play on the movie theme. It was easy to eat in a car. It allowed Richard Blaze to say the word, the phrase, elevated popcorn. <laughs> Which I'm sure made him extremely happy. Uh, you know, and then like they all got to bitch about getting their fancy product placed BMW sticky, which made them happy. And we were done with drama. My feeling about the drama of dueling popcorn is to quote Bojack Horseman, I mean, it's not Ibsen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're you're not wrong. I mean, really, like it, it just all they have to do is like come up with a pun. And they're golden. I mean, like, if we look towards action, you know, Maria makes a hot dog and a bun, and she just says, like, because this is what you eat after you get some action. And then everyone thinks that's hilarious, and they're like, okay, who gives a fuck that, like, a hot dog doesn't have anything to do with action movies? It's a fucking tasty hot dog. Whereas Gabriel, who makes his cauliflower tots, which I actually have something I want to say about in a moment, but he says it's like, you choose your own adventure because you're dipping in different sauces, and... As somebody who doesn't really like to be very active, but does like to dip things, I, of course, <laughs> like the implication that making a sauce choice is akin to some kind of intense activity, but I don't know. They obviously didn't like the sauce. They didn't really like the tots. Yeah, they described them as gummy and salty. My feeling on the cauliflower tots was like, because Gabriel gives us the whole fucking backstory of like why he's making cauliflower tots because he was like overweight as a kid and people were mean to him. And it's like, I get that. Like, and I'm sorry that you were bullied. But on the other hand, just use some fucking potatoes. Like, like, aren't you leaning into the very constructs that bullied you if you're like, well, I don't want to be fat again, so I'm going to deny all worldly pleasure to myself and not have any real fucking tater tots. Like, let the tater tots happen, man. Just... Make some fucking potato. Like, there's a reason tater tots are made out of potatoes. It's because potatoes are delicious. And they're not made out of cauliflower because cauliflower is not as delicious. Sorry. Or if you're not, do it correctly. I mean, I will say, this is this is Dan's food, 40 seconds. You cut up some cauliflower, olive oil, salt, pepper, a little bit of Parmesan. Put the oven to 450, put it in there for 20 minutes. And I swear to God, those motherfuckers sort of taste like tater tots. Like if you really cook that cauliflower up with some oil, like it kind of it kind of has that crisp and it has that saltiness. So like I'm not saying I'm better cooking than Gabriel, but maybe I'm better at cooking cauliflower. So take that. No, those are some pale looking tots. Like whatever they're made out of, they should not be that sad, tragic, pale color. It was a PG-13 ass action movie, it sounds like. Like, <laughs> I don't need you to come in there and just being like, like you get and you finally face the bad guy and you're just like, darn you, doofus. It's like, no, like, yippee Kaye, <laughs> motherfucker. yippee Kaye, motherfucker. And that is what Maria did. She made a Sonoran hot dog. She made, the, she made her own sausage. She made her own buns. I thought she was fucked. 
when she made that choice. And then she knocked it out of the park. But I was really worried. I appreciate that they applauded her ambition. Like, especially yeah. you hear from Richard Blaze, who, like, honestly, I imagine, like, might one challenge, like, take the time to build a time machine so he can go back in time to get a proper ingredient. Like, he's got such a mad scientist vibe. And he was, as a judge, like, I would never have tried to make all that food. The fact that she pulled it off. And then she felt quite a lot of feelings. And I will say we had been a little harsh on her because she had been whining about being in the middle. And it's mm. like, again, like, let's save our whining for the kikis of the world who are no longer with us and we must pour it out for. But it sounds like she was externalizing quite a lot of different feelings that she has as a cook. Some that relate, she mentioned, to not having been in culinary school, which is obviously a class issue. Some that relate to gender, you know, talking about like in particular as a Mexican woman the kind of dynamics that go into being a chef. And if this hot dog was in any way able to help her feel more confident about herself, then more power. Yeah. Amen. Uh, moving on to sci-fi. Two good dishes for sci-fi. Yeah. We've got Nelson's unidentified Dominican object. It got a short a lot of me. It did. I enjoyed that. I, I liked both of that. And then Abishar's star s'mores, which is burnt marshmallow ice cream, liquid graham cracker and milk chocolate. Both look delicious. And again, I will say, this is just another example. The fact that Nelson won just speaks to when they make a dumb challenge, they really don't expect you to do that much with the dumb part. I just wish they broadcasted that more. Like, he just made something in the shape of a UFO, which is to say... A circle. A circle. (laughs) Which again, for those of you who are blind, is a pretty common shape in, in the human world. And... Abishar to me, I mean, his shit was way more sci-fi, but in, I guess in their defense, it's not like he only used the liquid nitrogen because it was a sci-fi competition. He made basically the same ass dish two weeks ago for the gelato thing. So I I had no objection to them picking. I, both of these looked amazing. My selection would have to do with, did I want dessert or do I want something, something savory? I mean, this to me, I was just like, wait, uh, how can I order this as a duo for my dinner? Like I want to eat the... I want to eat the savory thing first, and then I want to polish it off with the space s'mores. Like, it was just like a good meal. It does give me a little bit of flashbacks to my time when I worked at space camp, in that the children, they were just so fucking obsessed with Dippin' Dots, which is Ugh. not A, is not even the space ice cream, which is like dehydrated ice cream, which you know they have on the actual, they had on spaceships. And B, always created such a mess. But most importantly, it's just so lacking in flavor. Like it's, it just sucks. Its tagline is that it is the ice cream of the future. And, you know, given where our world is heading, I, I sort of believe that. <laughs> but the other thing, this is perhaps a particular complaint that has to do with being klutzy. But if you were at a baseball game and you have a helmet cup filled with dipping Dots and you're in the upper deck because, you know, you're a fucking plebe. Like, if you get a little bit of wiggle, you're going to lose like half your dipping Dots. Whereas if you have a helmet Sunday with soft serve, it's going to cohere to itself. And worst case scenario, you're going to lose a couple of sprinkles. So that is all to say that as much as Abishar's thing looked pretty cool and that it's like, ooh, it's like fancy space ice cream. You know, it's also good. Just fucking ice cream. So <laughs> as much as I love Abishar and I, I like science fiction, I, I think I'm, I'm fine with Nelson getting the win here. I'm fine with it. I, I, I just I left the sci-fi category just being like, oh, good. They're both safe. Like Yahtzee, see you next week, Nelson and Abishar. I, I, um, moving on to, oh. I was just going to say, I do get a small bit of petty enjoyment from seeing Caligio admit that he enjoys things that have sugar in them. <laughs> and that yeah, he that doesn't, nice. in fact, need all of his desserts to have fucking chicken liver mousse in them or whatever, as we'll get to later. That was 
really fucking weird. So getting getting to the horror, I mean, this is the example. These are two, honestly, these might be the two best chefs in the competition. And they yeah. were so overthinking this dumbass challenge with their horror that they forgot to cook. I mean, literally, I think this happened with Katsuji in that, like, they did this at a bookstore three seasons ago, if you remember. And I think Katsuji had to do, like, a Stephen King book. And he just put all this fucking blood on the plate, which is just, like, red sauce. And it was a giant mess. And it looked like shit. And it tasted way too sauced. So Shota, this is the worst thing. I, I, I love Shota. But, like, what the fuck was he thinking? He said his worst... The worst thing he could think of would be if somebody killed his dog. So he made a cheesy, bloody dog, which was bechamel in like a burnt black sesame corn casing. And it's like, why would you make people think about a dead dog before they eat a hot dog? And then Gabe, who, I mean, credit to him for the like the verve he puts into his narration about it. But he's like going for like blood. And what he ends up with is just like. Five kinds of seafood, none of which you can taste because they're drowned out by, like, Bloody Mary mix. Like, for some really smart chefs, this was some really dumb shit. My note is Darth Tater is super lucky Gabe was on the winning team because I they did not like his dish. And, yeah, I mean, this was just two chefs where I was like, I would be not at all surprised to see you both in the final. But, you know, just come up with a pun, like – Nothing's scarier than using high heat. And that's why I seared this piece of steak. Like you just, you, you do not need to like cr- make a crime scene on the judge's plate. And that is what, I mean, Shoda's looked just, I think Padma was like, this doesn't look very appetizing. And I was like, no, because it's supposed to be a physical manifestation of Shoda's dead dog. Again, I think this is the second time. In this podcast, I've, I've referenced the imitative fallacy. But again, just because you're making something that in some way evokes horror does not mean itself. It needs to be horrific. Yeah, you know, as as they say, it, it could be done better. And I hope they both learned a valuable lesson. I mean, especially just thinking a little bit about game theory. You are still early enough in the season that the only way you're going to go home is if you serve them something that tastes shitty. Like later, if this were top five, we've seen this. We've seen it when you get to like the top five, when they're they're given some kind of sh- weird ass challenge and everything is delicious, but they're like, this is this one adhered the least to the challenge. And so that's what we're sending home. We are not there. Don't no, serve them. No, we're not, we're not even close to there. You can still be in the middle, you know, like make your little space s'mores and move on to the next round. Be like, oh yeah, UFOs are circular and so are corn cakes. I would say especially for Shota and Gabe because their strength is in a particular cuisine. The only way that they're going to fuck up before they get to the point of the show where you can just make your own food is if they mess up in one of these challenges that pushes them off their spot. So like they both should have been way more conservative and instead yeah. they both were like, I'm going to go for it. And like, I'm all for going for it, but go for it in an area of your expertise and not just like blood on the plate. Weird choices. Speaking of weird choices, churro with chicken liver mousse. And strawberry and dolce de leche. I mean, they seem to like it okay. Some people were into it. I have a, a tough time with it, but my guess is right, like sweet and savory, it could work. I mean. It could be good. I, st- I think I would have stuck to the dolce de leche, but you know. I see why they did it. It it helped that a couple things. One, it was composed by all of them. 
So yeah. no one individual is really up against it. And Sarah, I mean, Sarah won with her milkshake, which on the one hand is, is actually, I think, an example of bad process in that she's way more concerned with the dumb part of the challenge and the smart part. But on the other hand, it works for the smart part because it's a milkshake at a drive-in and just sounds like the flavors were more coherent. Though, again, I don't know why there's miso in the strawberry, but I trust them that it's good. I made that note too. I was like, I've never seen miso in so many sweet dishes in my life as I have on this season. I am clearly that's like a hot thing to do, but I cannot, I cannot picture it, what it would taste like. Well, I guess we know what we'll order the next time, the next time we meet up at the drive-in. So, I mean, for the yellow team, this was a dramatic come from behind. Though the cynic in me wonders if they just wanted to see all the dishes. Like there have been some of these challenges in prior seasons where basically the person who goes seventh never has to serve their food. And in fact, then is at an advantage because they can then not be eliminated. So for example, season eight, they did a best of seven head to head, I believe at the U S open tennis courts. And one team ended up winning four to two. I mean, you'll remember how best of sevens work from the 1998 world series. No doubt. Oh, excuse you. Anyway, <laughs> But anyway, so at how it happened, this girl, Jamie, who had already people like, I don't know if anybody remembers this girl, Jamie, from season eight, but she had already missed a challenge because she cut her finger and somehow avoided elimination because somebody who actually stayed and cooked got eliminated. And then she didn't even have to serve food and her team, so her team lost four to two. So in a sense, only the four people who ended up serving food and losing had an opportunity to be eliminated because her food was never tasted. So in theory, if... If the green team had won the sci-fi challenge, right? If Abishar wins with his ice mm-hmm. cream, we never get Shota's bloody cheese dog and we never get Sarah's milkshake. Now, I don't, I guess those people weren't going home anyway for various reasons, but it is one of the problems when they do these kind of like team individual challenges. And it, the cynic in me again does wonder if they were just like, fuck it, let's, we want to get everybody's food out. I think that's definitely possible. Um, so yeah, so the teams end up tying. Uh, and the the winning team ends up being the one with the winning the winning dish, which is uh, Byron with his very delicious looking fried chicken, saving saving Gabe. I don't think Gabe was going to be eliminated, but it was a source of tension for Darth Tater until that moment. And for our audience, no doubt. I mean, a couple of quick Byron notes. I mean, again, one just for those of you who are planning to go on Top Chef, just take note. At no point does anybody mention the word comedy or humor in relation to this chicken. They just say that it, it could is not give a shit. crispy and delicious. And then Byron, in, in I think a very sweet moment, says, quote, it's a good night to be Byron. <laughs> he was sweet. When he won the $10,000, he was like, oh. No, he looked legitimately like he was in on the prices right. And he had just been called down. And he's like, high five. He's doing the double high five which I think literally only exists on game shows. Like, have you ever seen outside of a game show people do the, like, double patty cake high five? Quick editor's note. Uh, my computer said that it had 25% battery, but it was lying and it died. So if this seems like a slightly abrupt change from what Dan and I were just talking about, uh, Jamie was eliminated, as we've already said, for her for her chicken that was rubbery, or maybe just Tom Clicchio really wanted to call it rubbery. She's the bomb and I will miss her. Daniel? I'd like to thank you for that. We didn't get a Gwen's food minute, but we did get a Gwen's apology minute. Or are we going to call that a Gwen discusses technology minute? <laughs> Either way, I think, it, I think it fits in. Yeah, Jamie, oh. Jamie's going to be missed. And it's, it's weird how these things overlap where 
she had a lot of personality and it seemed like her food had a lot of personality, had a lot of flavor, it was spicy, sweet, playing certainly on um, a lot of Vietnamese flavors, but also engaging with a bunch of other stuff. Um, you know, there's an old ancient proverb that if you make a lot of weird ass squeaky sounds in the kitchen, you're probably not going to end up that doing that well on Top Chef. And I think that that worked out here. Like this space maybe was just too constraining for her. She was a delight to have on the screen. As you mentioned, maybe Last Chance Kitchen will get her back sooner rather than later. You know, we should have maybe been more worried about her in the first episode when she used some spice as like a chemical weapon in the kitchen. And Oh God, I forgot about that. I think just her being so charming perhaps gave us a false sense of security about her ability to hang on the show. But conversely, I think she was sabotaged by Gabriel and I'm always going to think that. And I hope he, um, you know, pays for it in this life or the next. I cannot agree more. And I feel like it's a, it's a good pivot to last chance kitchen. So as I said earlier in the episode, I think actually, I think next, next last chance kitchen is going to be someone getting a chance to return to the show. And I think that that's going to be in part because in the coming up next for Top Chef, it's a double elimination next week. I have a feeling that they're going to eliminate two chefs and then the three chefs are going to do a little do a little competition and one of those three chefs is going to be able to come back. Well, as always, Tom Policchio takes an opportunity to be a dick about why the person was eliminated <laughs> and to make that the basis of always. the last chance chicken last chance kitchen challenge um which actually the bravo website refers to as last chance chicken in which they are asked to make something using the entire chicken which is i think a cooler challenge than it sounds like in that the reason they're doing it is to try to fuck with them but i i do think that i always like the challenges that are even if they're not designed to be about food waste end up being about food waste um i remember some there was a similar challenge can't remember which season which was about quote, trash fish, and was about just sort of like cooking with particular fish that are, you know, fairly plentiful, but that for whatever reason we dismiss. Same goes, obviously, they've had challenges with things like livers and innards and all kinds of things that we don't, we don't typically cook with. And I I remember now that challenge was like, I think it was like fucking catnip for um, season 10 winner, Kristen Kish, who basically always wanted to make chicken liver mousse, which is like a weird like trunk art to have in your back pocket, but I swear she made chicken liver mousse like nine times in that season and they always loved it. And so she had a last chance chicken, last chance kitchen challenge <laughs> to use, to use innards and she just fucking knocked it out of the park. So again, it's not something that I have any experience doing. Like my association with chicken innards is just my dad being weird and just being like, like it's just being understood. Like on Thanksgiving, like the innards were going to my dad and you know, he was, he was going to like them, but at the same point, my father has been exposed to so many different kinds of chemicals, both voluntarily and involuntarily, that while there's many things that I revere and trust him with, like his palate is probably not <laughs> not at the top not of that those. list. But anyway, Jamie, she made it seem like a chili with a stock that employed, I think, most of the innards into the stock, which was what both of them did. And she toasted the skin, whereas Kiki made a fried chicken um, connected to the foot and served with looked like some coleslaw on top and the stock was in the kind of drizzle and it seemed like Clickio much preferred Jamie's, but I don't know what's your takeaway thing from this last chance chicken kitchen. 
I thought it was a, a cool challenge. I liked seeing them cook with parts of the chicken. I don't cook with the innards, the feet. And it seemed pretty clear. I mean, it's pretty rare on Last Chance Kitchen that Tom says like anything critical about either dish because he's trying to like keep up the tension. But for this one, he really was just like Kiki's had some issue that he mentioned. And then he was like, and Jamie's the winner. So I'm excited for Jamie. I love Jamie. I hope she makes it back to the show unless a member of Darth Tater is eliminated next week, in which case I hope she loses to that member of Darth Tater so that they can make it back to the show. As always, thinking about the greater good, I will say this kind of challenge is the kind of challenge that I like in that even when it asks you to do something outside of your comfort zone, it's something that ostensibly should be within a chef's comfort zone. So again, it's yeah. it's not asking them to do something random that there's no reason to expect they would ever be able to do or that is just like meaningless, like basically be like, you know, I want you to cook something that invokes the the sadness and melancholy of the the butterfly as it approaches the <laughs> fucking elk elm tree or whatever it's like <laughs> and you also have to use swanson broth this is again something <laughs> okay, well, that let's, one would let's do that for have. the next quick fire yeah you just end up with the thing like in the simpsons when yoko ono goes into mo's bar and says i'll i'll have a plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat but while I have no idea what their experience is working with the whole chicken, it does seem as if that's something reasonable for them for them to know. And I do I do think for the most part the chefs do pretty well with this, with the exception of poor Katsuji. I think it was last season, maybe two seasons ago, where because he runs a kosher restaurant, he just didn't know that some particular part of the pig's head has like oh, I remember releases that. some particular kind of like foul chemicals that, I mean, admittedly, I didn't know that either. Um, but... This was a good challenge. Jamie looks like she she did better with it. I mean, maybe maybe last kitchen last chance kitchen is a good spot for her to just be away from some of the madness and just kind of settle in. We do see that sometimes with chefs that they they do better in that kind of like one on one, just focused kind of kind of setting. Um, there was nobody there to fuck her over and convince her to under fry her chicken wings. And I hope she meets Gabriel in if not last chance kitchen, then in an alley. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that sets it up. Uh, hopefully she'll do a good job next week. And, you know, Dan will continue to attempt to say last chance kitchen without messing it up. And, you know, we'll we'll be we'll be all back together again with you next week. I went this whole fucking episode without making a loud noise adjusting <laughs> my chair. And I did not get any positive reinforcement <laughs> for it. So I don't know. I'm feeling a little bit underappreciated over here. <laughs> Very anyway. sorry. You've done an amazing job not fidgeting with things. Thank you. The people who are not underappreciated are our listeners. We thank you all for being with us. As always, we encourage and solicit feedback at batch underscore face on Twitter or resting batch face at Gmail. We look forward to featuring more listener comments and fewer fake listener comments that I just invented. <laughs> But it's a marathon, not a sprint. So, And we know how much Dan loves marathons. You know, fa- Facebook told Brett that it was like five years ago yesterday that we did that fucking That's nonsense. Crazy. That's crazy. So not only, oh, not only do I feel old, but I feel a little young in that I still feel the youthful bitterness that I had towards you <laughs> <laughs> in and around <laughs> that athletic I stand feat. by... I stand by all my choices. Um, Yes, thank you, listeners, and we will talk with you all soon.